The Brief by Open City is a weekly roundup and review of UK architecture news. While our coverage is UK focused, we are aware of the shock of recent global events and the potential impact this could have on our valued community of contributors and listeners. Open City is a charity which encourages its staff to take an active interest in current affairs, including challenging ones, and believes that civil deeds, including attending vigils, gatherings and other forms of advocacy, is an important civic right aligned with the charity's values. At this challenging time, we stand by these values and encourage our wider community to reflect, learn, share and respond positively to the challenges we all together face. The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. Housing crisis takes centre stage in UK media and politics. £10 billion a year extra needed for UK infrastructure amid the climate crisis. Thomas Heatherwick launches a new national conversation around boring buildings. And the online traditional architecture movement is placed under the microscope. My name is Saiba Chadda. I'm an architect and partner at Cullinan Studio. And I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week at Bureau in the Design District is Charlie Edmonds. Charlie is project lead at Civic Square and co-founder of campaign group Future Architects Front. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Housing is rocketing up the political agenda in the build-up to the next general election, expected to take place in 2024. Last week, the BBC aired a hard-hitting docuseries investigating Britain's housing crisis, the crumbling reality of the home ownership dream and a decade of hollow promises made by politicians. Across two one-hour-long episodes, the BBC Two programme explored the history of housing policy in the UK, delving into how the idea of mass home ownership was sold to the public in the 1980s and the resulting challenging consequences that many people face today. The show scrutinises the role of house builders, banks and government policy in contributing to the housing crisis in today's Britain and uses several current developments, many of which we've covered on this show, including Battersea Power Station's regeneration, to illustrate the interconnectedness of this often oversimplified issue. Meanwhile, in The Guardian last week, Ollie Wainwright published an in-depth investigation into a wave of discontent among new home buyers provoked by shoddy construction issues in new-built properties. His article pointed to the dominance of a few major house builders prioritising profits above volume and quality, quoting figures which show that before 2008's financial crisis, the average profit per home for large UK house builders was around £30,000, but by 2017, this figure had doubled to over £62,000, with dividends soaring, all against the backdrop of an ever-deepening housing shortage. Despite such huge profits, the quality of the finished product appears to be worsening, with swathes of professional snagging companies emerging out of the crisis, often called in by frustrated homeowners to inspect their properties and generate detailed reports. The BBC Two documentary and a Guardian investigation coincided with the opposition leader Keir Starmer declaring himself a YIMBY and promising to review planning regulations and build 1.5 million homes over five years if he becomes Prime Minister. Where, you may ask? Labour's answer is what it calls grey belt wasteland within the green belt, which makes up a fifth of Greater London itself. 
According to a 2019 report from the Centre for Cities, vacant land within walking distance from train stations, an area equivalent to just 1.8% of the green belt, could provide space for more than 2 million homes. So, Charlie, first of all, did you watch that uh, documentary on the BBC last week? And what did you make of it? Um, what sort of impact do you think this sort of coverage can have um, on perceptions of current housing policy? Yeah, I caught the first episode and I think I'm sort of fortifying myself to watch the second one as well. Um, like anyone who grew up in London who's under 30, a lot of it is not particularly shocking and a lot of it is very reflective of, um, I suppose, lived experience. Though I think it's, yeah, it's it's great that it's um, finding these prime time slots now. And hopefully documentaries like this, though, you know, may be imperfect and may be um, not framing the problem in with, with quite the sort of like radical solutions that someone like me might hope for. I do still think it's great that it's in that spot and it's in that kind of privileged area of discourse now. Yeah, I mean, the housing crisis has been something on everyone's lips for quite some time now. And um Obviously, Keir Starmer seems to be making this a central issue for his run for um, the next election. Um, but, you know, this has been upgraded by... John Elledge had argued that it's been upgraded to a housing emergency rather than a crisis. Um, and it's been gaining lots more coverage um, in the media with, you know, shocking headlines almost every week about conditions people are living in. So do you think we've kind of reached a landmark, you know, a moment of change where we're finally shifting beyond the decades-long pro-ownership consensus that we have in this country? And if so, what do you think has gotten us to this stage? As as that documentary uh, laid out, there's been, I suppose since the 80s, this kind of neoliberal fixation on a democracy of property owners, right? And I think that finally the sort of death knell for that political delusion is kind of coming home because... Anyone who's, you know, millennial, Gen Z, sees that a democracy of uh, property owners is not necessarily a just system to live under. So I think it is certainly a turning point and the fact that it's being addressed by the opposition at all is good. But at the same time, I do worry that we are kind of maybe doing the topic a disservice sometimes by thinking of it as broken system when really the system is working exactly as designed, which is treating land as a sort of speculative asset through which we can extract value from. So if we view that as the intended outcome of the system, which it very much is, then it's really not broken at all. It's working wonderfully well. It's working exactly as it's intended to. And um, I think that for us to kind of really lean into this turning point now, we need to acknowledge that distinction and we need to make sure that we don't, I suppose, miss this wave of um, focus on this topic by remaining in this space of tinkering and maybe ineffective reformism. Yeah, that's that's an interesting take, that idea that, you know, the aspirational home and land ownership picture of this country is working as planned. I mean, I've not heard it framed quite that way before. And of course, the people who've benefited from that probably, you know, are really proud of being part of that system, being on the ladder and so on. My view might be that they might not be so keen on Starmer's pledge to roll out this series of new towns on grey belt land. You know, um, he's calling himself a Yimby. Yes, in my backyard. 
And a lot of those homeowners might actually be NIMBYs, which is not in my backyard. So what do you make of this pledge of new towns? Like, Do you think it's a, a tangible solution to the problems that were set out in that BBC documentary? Or Open City Chief Executive Finn Harper was arguing in a recent Guardian opinion piece that there needs to be a lot more done, in particular, you know, ending right to buy, building more social housing. So, you know, what, what do you make of all of that? Yeah, so I think there's kind of a few different theories of change that are being promoted here. The one that Starmer seems to be advocating for is this idea that you can flood the market with housing in order to bring down prices, very kind of like classic economics 101 supply and demand kind of thinking. But what we know is that relying on the market to regulate itself and relying on house builders to almost work against their own profit incentive by building at such volumes that it would be detrimental to their bottom line is it's, it's a fantasy. Um, we can see from house builders right now, we we spoke a little bit about Ollie Wainwright's article, and um, this is a really great demonstrator of how when you put value extraction at the heart of any element of the built environment, well, what you end up with is not a socially oriented um, final product, but you end up with, uh, you know, some really atrocious living conditions where the primary function is sort of shareholder dividends, as we already mentioned. So, yeah, that seems to be the kind of ambition from Starmer, which I guess is, yeah, not particularly viable in my opinion. As Finn has outlined in their piece, things like ending right to buy is hugely important. The only way you can really get to a place of affordable housing is if you have the alternative of social housing to kind of regulate the market. This is something that we can see in Vienna right now, today. We, you know, it's not an abstract theoretical concept. We can literally go and um, see it in action. From my point of view, though, what both of these discussions miss is the really, really crucial element of the climate emergency. Because although building our way out through social housing, I think, is a more realistic solution than building our way out through market rate housing, the sort of sad reality is that we don't really have the hydrocarbon budget for either. So we really need to be thinking about making the most of what we already have. So this can take the form of retrofit to improve and maybe bring unusable housing stock back into use. But also, I think we need to be having conversations around expropriation of property and expropriation of land. Because like I said, we don't have the hydrocarbon budget to build our way out of it with either social or market housing. So we need to start looking at what there is and thinking, how can this be put back into social use? And again, this isn't abstract. This is something that um, they're doing right now in Barcelona. Um, this is something that the Catalan government are talking about. There's all of these examples of um, you know, different parts of the world where people are putting radical housing policies into play and they're beginning to sort of pay off and they're beginning to kind of show us a roadmap of more radical but more effective pathways that we can take. So from my point of view, like, yes, definitely end right to buy, definitely expand social housing. But we also need to be talking about not just growth and more production, but we need to be talking about redistribution as well. Okay. So, I mean, some of our listeners might not be so familiar with concepts such as like expropriation, which um, I think my understanding is that the government or local authority would inherit or take land back to 
build houses and so on. Um, how does something like that really work in practice? Because it sounds a bit pie in the sky, particularly in the context of this country. Um, so could you elaborate a bit more on that? Luckily, like I said, we have case studies like Barcelona to kind of show that they don't have to be pie in the sky. They can and are happening. In that particular case, the way that it's working is that they're prioritizing empty rental units. So a lot of the time it's preferential from the point of view of a landlord to leave a unit vacant in order to sort of wait for more preferential market conditions to let it out for higher profit. So what this kind of policy does is it makes that not an option. It says if you're going to try and leave this unit empty to try and extract more value out of it, well, we're going to take it back and we're going to put it into social use through our sort of mandate as the government whose supposed primary function is to protect and improve the material conditions of the people. Okay. No, that makes sense. But I guess, you know, something that's been carted about a lot recently is this idea of an empty homes tax, which people think would solve that problem that you're talking about, about empty homes. Do you think that that feeds into it? Or do you think that that's just not enough? A tax typically operates as a kind of market incentive. And I think right now, we're at the point where the same with something like a carbon tax, for example, we we literally just do not have time to be trying to address problems through trying to sort of tinker with the market. You know, we need to be in a place where we can take bold, radical action to actually address these concurrent and cascading crises that exist both socially and ecologically. So I think it's the time to kind of move past the idea of a carbon tax or a vacancy tax and just say, let's just put the policies in place that need to be in place to address the problems. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, we've covered on this show a lot of culture war themed issues that have been in the news recently, for example, low traffic neighbourhoods, you know, um, that really kind of pits different ideals against each other. This idea of, you know, threatening people's ownership of their home or this aspirational view of like the Englishman and his castle. Um, you know, we're a nation of people who are obsessed with like home and property shows. Do you really think that's realistic in the context? Like Barcelona is a very different context to um, the UK. So I think there's kind of two concurrent conversations here. There's the conversation about what is materially necessary and is more of a scientific question than anything else. And then there's a question of um, strategy, popular opinion, campaigning, which is much more of a sort of, yeah, political angle to this. So from my point of view, what I am primarily concerned in is the material conditions. What has to happen socially, what has to happen ecologically to ensure equity, justice and our survival going into the next sort of 100 plus years. The question of obviously how do you then secure that through something like campaigning strategy or political messaging becomes a lot more complicated, uh, which you know I, I fully accept. But I do think that there are plenty of ways that you can tell these stories in a way that resonates with people. Um, you know, so for example, a huge amount of private housing right now was built as council housing. People's memories aren't that short. You know, they remember that. So. We're, we're in this kind of ludicrous situation now where often councils are having to pay or subsidize the rent of people with private landlords where the buildings were built by the council. So I really think that there's a lot of ways that we can kind of communicate this sort of conversation where 
yeah, it's not about attacking the English man in his castle. It's about returning to a sense of people getting their fair share of their cities, of the built environments, of the places where they grew up and they've sort of lived for maybe generations in a lot of cases. Um, and I think from the cultural point of view, it's easy to sort of maybe hold a lot of these ideas as quite controversial. But um, one thing that I'm always shocked by is if you look purely at polling on individual issues, the average person in the UK, I, I would say you could more accurately describe as like a democratic socialist. If you look at it purely from an opinion on policy issues point of view, people want radical climate action. People want equity to be put at the forefront of government policy. The challenge comes about when we end up kind of getting too trapped, I suppose, in the in the game of party politics. So maybe long-winded answer, but I think I think there's kind of two threads to it. There's that material side and the campaigning side, one of which I think is just a fact, the material side, and the other one I see great hope for in terms of how we can overcome and uh, kind of bring people with us on this sort of journey. Yeah, thank you for that. It is um, a super complicated area, but I think you've, you've highlighted some uh, sort of interesting points there, not least the climate emergency, which kind of links into our next story. An extra £10 billion a year needs to be injected into public infrastructure provision in order to support growth and meet net zero targets, according to the National Infrastructure Commission, the NIC. An independent review of national infrastructure policy published the same month the government slashed elements of High Speed 2 and reported by the AJ last week has called for a sharp increase in infrastructure spending and highlighted the need to embed design culture in major projects. In its second five-yearly infrastructure review, the NIC set out an action agenda for the government for the next 30 years, demanding new projects be built around, quote, climate, people, places and value. As well as setting out the need for a new design culture, the report called for design champions to lead on major projects, the increased use of place plans with more public involvement and the reform of public spending frameworks to put spending caps on major infrastructure projects. Forthcoming design guidance will build on NIC's previous 2020 guidance, insisting on the, quote, need for major schemes to embed design principles throughout the project lifecycle, with a new emphasis on board-level design champions to achieve this. This report's publication coincided with devastating floods caused by Storm Babbitt across parts of the UK, impacting roads, rail lines, around 1,250 homes and claiming the lives of seven people. According to reports by Sky News, 13 areas in England broke their daily rainfall records for October last week. Residents of the flood-hit town of Retford in Nottinghamshire confronted the Visiting Environment Secretary's Therese Coffey, asking her, quote, why stuff hasn't happened since the last major floods in 2007. So, Charlie, this report from the NIC comes just weeks after the government announced it would be scrapping the Manchester Lake of HS2 and downscaling the Euston Terminal of the London to Birmingham line. And at the same time, thousands of homes have been flooded due to inadequate defences and storms have caused severe delays on public transport across the Midlands and Northern England. You know, why is the UK infrastructure in such a perilous position and how do you think we got here? So you can draw very consistent parallel lines between the condition of housing and the condition of infrastructure. Both can be seen as a kind of story of neoliberalism, where we politically decided at one point that the best thing to do would be to privatize services, sell off assets, and leave governance far more to the market. And 
A great example of how this impacts uh, infrastructure is the fact that in the UK, we have not built a reservoir since 1989, when the water systems were privatized. So again, we are in a system where infrastructure is not coordinated according to outcomes and effectiveness. It's coordinated according to returns on investment and dividends for shareholders. So it's really no surprise then that when we get the kind of weather that in many parts of the world is frequent already, everything kind of comes to a halt. I was actually trying to get to the from Birmingham to the Centre for Alternative Technology in Wales on Friday when a lot of this took place. And getting around flooded roads, seeing rivers that had burst their banks and gone right over fields. I think it really was a little snapshot of exactly what we can start to expect as normal as part of the climate crisis in the UK. So that is the context. And I think if we want to do something to address it, then you know we need to be putting far more investment into infrastructure, but we also need to address the fundamental mechanisms that motivate infrastructure and the production of infrastructure. So they have to be publicly owned. You know, We can't keep outsourcing this to people whose primary interest is extracting value. We've seen with the water systems, we've seen with the rail systems, we've seen with almost every uh, sold off asset or sold off public service that this approach of privatization only leads to terrible outcomes and um, disarray. So that's something that needs to kind of fundamentally be put right in addition to a lot more investment. The Pritzker Prize-winning architect David Chipperfield has called for new retrofit-first-based planning regulations when he was answering questions at the annual Conran lecture. Um, Chipperfield told audience, quote, don't knock a building down. He went on, quote, we have to move on tackling embodied carbon. And I would say you are smelling that already now in planning discussions in London. The move has to be not what's the reason for keeping the building, but give us a convincing reason why you can't keep it. Um, what do you make of this chance from Chipperfield, Charlie? Do you think this is a kind of major cultural shift towards retrofit? Yeah, I think the sentiment is absolutely correct. I do think the the default question should be, is it worth knocking it down? Because maybe this conversation around retrofit is still fairly young at, at, at a kind of like mainstream level, at least, I, d I do think that we miss a lot of nuance with it. And perhaps the most important version of that loss of nuance is that you could retrofit the whole of the UK or you could retrofit a building with rock wool, with petrochemical products, and you could do it alternatively with natural materials, you know, straw, hemp, um, lime wash, all these kinds of things. Both of those are retrofit, but the implications of embodied carbon that those two approaches uh, result in are vastly and dramatically different. So just as I was saying earlier that we don't have the hydrocarbon budget to build our way out of a housing crisis, we also don't have the hydrocarbon budget to retrofit the entirety of the UK using petrochemical products. We need to take this call for retrofit further, I think, and also make it a call for natural materials, which have lower embodied carbon. And I think they also raise lots of then consequential uh, inquiries that we also need to make, such as if we do need much more biomass to do the retrofit, to do low embodied carbon construction, where are we going to grow it? That then brings us to a question of, well, what are we doing with all the land right now? 
Should it really all be sort of dedicated to either private use or beef farming? Um, and then it kind of gets into these like really quite significant and profound questions around how do we as a country use our land? You know, to give a sort of shout out to people who are doing really great work on this, Material Cultures, uh, I, I highly recommend the um, book they put out recently, which captures a lot of this and it captures a lot of these um material reality is that we need to address through not only new buildings, but also how we're doing retrofit and the consequences of the material choices that we make. Yeah, I mean, across both infrastructure and retrofit, there's, you know, a fundamental issue around what people think is good design and good architecture. Just to quote some of what Chipperfield, you know, said, which I wanted to highlight because I couldn't not, was about how architects um, and designers are kind of seen once they get out into the world after their training. You know, he said, you know, we're told we're going to make the world a better place, not just that, a prettier one. Then we come out of education thinking that's going to be true and surprised that the world treats us like dog poo. So, um, you know, how would you address that? And architectural students now probably learning a lot more about these alternative technologies. But, you know, is the world ready for it? Is the the UK um, construction industry ready for this kind of seismic change? So there's kind of two pathways that we can go down. We can go through a kind of planned transition, just like the transition from oil to clean energy, where it's managed, it's resourced, and it's intentional. Or we can go through another transition, which is enforced by a cascading series of climate catastrophes. Either way, there's going to be a transition. So from my point of view, the choice is not to change or not, it's how to change. And something that I am seeing through like my own teaching and lecturing and the kind of work that I do at Civic Square is that young architects and architecture students are not daunted by the enormity of this challenge, but they're really enthused and they're really up for it. And they really want to be given the agency to actually learn these emerging or re-emerging skills around natural building materials, um, low embodied carbon, and creating a built environment that is socially and ecologically oriented as opposed to oriented towards the inflation of land value, which is, as, as we've seen from the house builders, that's the primary mode of business now for a lot of the built environment. So I'm quite encouraged and optimistic by um, younger architects and students. And uh, my hope is that they can join with wider political organizing and calls for these shifts to be put in place while we still have the luxury of deciding to do these shifts and transitions intentionally. The acclaimed and sometimes controversial designer Thomas Heatherwick has claimed that modern architecture is, quote, bland, vague and forgettable, sparking a fierce debate in the architectural world, with some pundits tearing into his argument against a, quote, global epidemic of inhuman buildings. In a review of Heatherwick's new book, Humanize, A Maker's Guide to Building Our Worldview, Rowan Moore wrote in The Guardian, quote, The designer is right to criticise boring buildings, but picks his targets poorly and shows no inclination to confront the forces that create such structures. Heatherwick, who is best known for his large-scale projects including Coldrop's Yard in London and Google's Bayview campus in the States, argued today's architecture should take inspiration from the likes of Anthony Gaudi, the Catalan architect and pioneer of Art Nouveau and Modernisme, most famous for the still-under-construction Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. In his review, Rowan Moore agreed that there are too many soulless buildings in today's world. However, he slammed Heatherwick's commentary for being, quote, head-numbingly and soul-crushingly simplistic. 
Moore's scathing comments were echoed by pundits of X, formerly known as Twitter, who accused Heatherwick of ignoring the forces which shape contemporary architecture from globalised finance and industrial building techniques to the sheer scale of global construction and the socioeconomic factors that steer it. Meanwhile, last week, it was announced that May's John Morden Centre, a building which, although not a fit for Heatherwick's definition of boring, does hide its complexity and refinement behind a more muted stoic appearance, was announced as the winner of the prestigious RIBA Sterling Prize. Speaking about the winning building, which is a daycare centre for the elderly in Blackheath, South London, the architect Charles Holland said, quote, Thoughtful, subtle and complex modern architecture. If it has a point beyond providing a great building for its client and users, it's that modern architecture is not the demon of current culture wars, but actually something that makes people's lives better and does this through care and a profound sense of commitment. So, Charlie, what, what do you make of Heatherwick's comments? Um, do you agree that modern buildings are boring and inhumane the thing i'm probably more interested in is what is his sort of motivation for this because it reminds me a little bit of how around the time of a new album kanye west starts saying really controversial things uh you know he started wearing the maga hat around the time that the yay album was coming out and you know my cynical side maybe wonders if a lot of this controversy is maybe a bit of a marketing strategy but um I don't know. I I, I definitely echo uh, Rowan Moore's critique of it. It 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 does seem to have this willful blindness to forces that shape the built environment beyond you know the sort of stylistic whims of an architect. It's kind of interesting your take on it because he's he's talking about things not being human or humane in relation to modernism, and like seems to be sort of equating sinuous curves with you know with humane architecture and. I, Thinking about my practice, you know, I'd say humane architecture is about what's what's the person's comfort in your build in a, your building. What's the quality of the light that they're experiencing? Like a real definition of humane is: can you get a wheelchair in, into every part of this building? Is it truly inclusive? You know, can you uh, fit a buggy in between these tables and this layout? It's kind of interesting to think about this definition of what is a humane architecture. I mean, do you have any anything that you that kind of comes to mind when you're thinking about that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the the more you accumulate wealth, the more that inflates. Then I think the less you really have any idea what humane even means. Um, and what I would agree with is exactly what you said, that humane and humanity in the built environment is about the provision of material needs for people. A curved facade isn't going to pay my rent. A high embodied carbon tree in a concrete plant isn't going to create a community for me. It's not going to create stability or, or allow for the conditions that would lead to a humane architecture. And I think if we look at the almost inescapable coverage of his opinions that we've been subject to recently, you know, I think primarily what that's representative of is, you know, not so much him as an individual, but more about how the media landscape works right now, because it's not really a media landscape that is rewarded for nuanced, timely, appropriate discussions. It's a media landscape that is rewarded by controversy, by um, sort of discourse and conflict. So that, I mean, that to me is why we kind of see him so much is because he is this controversial figure that can drive lots of clicks and, and can drive a lot of um, media revenue. 
and I suppose the kind of maybe support that he does find on uh, sort of Radio 4 shows and things like that, I expect come from people who are in fairly similar conditions to him, where, yeah, the city isn't something that he depends on to survive. You know, he's sheltered by his position in society. Many others are also sheltered by their positions. And so the city, it, it doesn't become something that you depend on for life and community. It does just become a sort of set of objects and ornaments that you're um, alienated from in any real social sense. Yeah, I, I think generally the controversy is what drives the attention and then what support is created from that are from people who find themselves in similar political economic conditions to Heatherwick himself. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I mean, and the Sterling Prize winning building from May Architects is obviously being presented in our story as a, as a kind of contrast or um, a counterpoint to the kinds of things that Heatherwick's describing. What's the significance of this being, you know, the most prestigious prize um, of the year? And, you know, what's the significance of it going to community building? I think it's definitely significant and i'm glad that the decision was made and I, I i appreciate the intent of trying to kind of platform a community oriented a socially oriented built environment i think what i would want to see in parallel to this is organizations like reba you know using their platform to make these buildings not so exceptional anymore you know it's kind of a shame actually that this project one in a sense because you know why can't we live in a world where that's just what these buildings look like or or that's how much thought and care goes into these buildings as as a standard so yeah like i said i think very well deserved happy it won the, the award happy that the awards uh committees are starting to think in this way but i really would also love to see that paired with a sort of determined sense of organizing and lobbying from these kind of institutions that um yeah, it makes these buildings not so spectacular anymore. Yeah, and hopefully other other community buildings can look to this. I think that's the positive thing that they can look to this as a as a um, an example of what you can do. So on to our next story: the architectural historian, academic, and next week's guest on the brief, Matthew Lloyd Roberts, delved into the age old battle between advocates of traditional and modern architecture in a long read article for the website Failed Architecture last week. In his in-depth account of the historical context surrounding this divisive and increasingly online discussion, Lloyd Roberts noted how many modernist critics today base much of their rhetoric on Augustus Welby Northmore Pugin's 1836 work, Contrasts, which compared and idealised medieval architecture with contemporary Victorian buildings, which he deemed austere, dehumanising and godless. In effect, Pugin had set in motion the idea that architecture itself served a social and moral purpose an idea which reached its apex in the post-war era when architects attempted to rebuild cities along ambitious transformative ideals. Fast forward and today's proponents of traditional and modern architecture, typically battling on social media platforms like X, appeared to reflect similar divides with conservatives, with a small c, favouring historic visions and progressives embracing socialist concepts aligned with modernist pioneers such as Bertolt de Betken. Lloyd Roberts criticises the shallow nature of this debate raging online, which often ignores the complex economic, cultural and social contexts which underpin the physical built environment. 
The article comes at a time when questions of beauty and the role of architecture are increasingly being brought into wider political discourse. On the brief, we've previously covered how beauty, often defined by the likes of Michael Gove and King's Charles as being Victorian and Georgian in nature, has found itself at the centre of discussions around planning reform and even how we resolve the housing crisis. Meanwhile, another throwback to the Victorian era has staged a major comeback over the past few weeks. Bedbugs have crawled across headlines, first in Paris, then here in London, where they have been driving panic over the cleanliness of hotels and public transport and raising questions over who is responsible for the blood-sucking pests in rented homes. The issue has reportedly become so bad in some areas that one expert warned that the commuter town of Southend was, quote, too far gone and, quote, a disaster zone. So, Charlie, firstly, I mean, what do you make of Lloyd Roberts' article? Do you traditional architectural um, advocates really forget the true horrors of the past at their peril? Yeah, you know, I, I, re I really applaud Matthew's willingness to kind of go deep into this argument, which he's right. It is incredibly shallow and can be overwhelmingly exhausting to, to deal with. And, you know, I think in, in a sense, he almost buries the lead in this article where, uh, you know, as, as any good historian will, he gives us a lot of rich uh, context in the beginning of the article as to where these kind of debates originate from. And then for me, the kind of really key point is uh, maybe almost a third or halfway in where he asks the question, what even is beauty? And who are the sort of arbiters of this? And, you know, the the, the truth is, is that it's just subjective. Like no matter how much advocates of this sort of what's being referred to as like a trad movement, no matter how much they try and pair it with incredibly shoddy uh, sort of like neuroscience experiments and um, claims that beauty is objective, it's just ahistoric. It, it has no basis in history. We, we can kind of look through the centuries as, as Matthew does in this article to show that beauty is based on social, cultural, economic context. The, you know, the really frustrating thing about this seemingly endless debate is that um, just the very premise of it is nonsense. <laughs> and yet it kind of um, seems like it just, it just won't ever go away. Social media platforms like X, TikTok and Instagram, you know, are where these debates get superheated nowadays. You know, how do these platforms serve the discourse? You know, you, um, you know, with Future Architects Front, um, obviously are very active on Instagram. Do you think that they're a useful tool for disseminating ideas or are they just sort of feeding resentment and polarising opinion? Yeah, they're, they're, they're certainly useful tools for disseminating ideas. But I think trying to assign a sort of morality to it is a little bit like trying to assign morality to a hammer where a hammer is going to be a hammer and how you use it is really where the kind of morality comes from. So, you know, I hope that in the way that we at FAF have tried to use social media is something that works towards um, solidarity, expanding class conscious amongst architectural workers, is something that helps people feel like they can move towards greater justice, both for themselves and for others. But at the same time, I do think just how online some of these debates are is um, also very representative of that sort of media landscape that we spoke about earlier, where the primary motivation for these platforms is people to keep coming back and people to keep engaging and clicking. And again, you know, you can get those clicks any way you want. And I think what we've seen with uh, this debate in particular is that... Um, it's the sort of anger that it instills in people that keeps those clicks coming. I don't know if I would say it's 
not relevant or not important. But I think my position on it is that we generationally have a greater mandate, arguably, than any generation prior to think materially and think according to social and ecological outcomes. And I do worry that these kind of immaterial debates about beauty and the kind of culture wars that it leads to do distract us from the fact that we you know, we are on a sinking ship and sometimes it feels like we're arguing about the colour of the lifeboat. <laughs> that's a that's a nice um, metaphor <laughs> to, to bring us to, I guess, my, I just wanted to ask about the bed bugs panic because that's been on, you know, shared widely on social media. Do you think it's a kind of warranted panic around, um, you know, how these are infiltrating our homes and cities and um, should we see this as a dangerous relic of the past coming back to haunt us or is it just do we just accept that these kind of critters are a constant in cities and we should just accept that they're there so i think one thing that is maybe an unexpected but really important piece of context for this story is to consider how cities are changing under a changing climate and um you know one thing that we discovered recently through our work with dark matter labs which still kind of blows my mind is that you know we talk about 1.5 degrees of change, 3 degrees of change, you know, currently we're at 1.2. And these aren't particularly scary numbers, but when you actually get into the nitty gritty of what that means for cities, it's actually a pronounced difference. So, you know, we're, we're expecting to see 3 degrees of um, global temperature change by around 2100, which, you know, is probably actually optimistic. But um, what that means is a, a global temperature change of three degrees means an on-land temperature change of five degrees. And when you then add that to an urban heat island like Birmingham or London, that becomes eight degrees. So it's really important to kind of keep in mind that I think we're going to see a lot of issues like this concentrated in cities because these are going to be the areas where the sort of volatility of the climate crisis are most pronounced. Okay, great. Let's move on to the culture section where we can talk a little bit more about the more pleasant aspects of city life. So the, the hugely popular book, London Feeds Itself, edited by food writer and editor of Vittles, Jonathan Nunn, sold out almost immediately when it was published in 2022. Uh, so Open City has teamed up with Fitz Coraldo Editions to co-publish a new and updated version of the book, which will be available in print and as an ebook in March 2024. London Feeds itself features 26 essays about 26 different buildings, structures and public amenities in which London's vernacular food culture can be found, seen through the eyes of writers, architects, journalists and politicians, accompanied, accompanied by 125 updated guides to some of the city's best vernacular restaurants across all 33 London boroughs by Jonathan Nunn. If you'd like to secure your copy, go to the Open City website to pre-order um, and Charlie, have you got anything good coming up on your cultural calendar or any recent highlights that you want to share? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, uh, I work for an organization called Civic Square, which is primarily oriented towards um, the climate transition uh, of our home streets and neighborhoods, looking at what a built environment transition looks like from the point of view of the people who live there. And Towards this aim, we uh, earlier this year started a recurring multi-city festival called Retrofit Reimagined. Uh, five cities uh, in total. We've already done four of them. We started in Birmingham. We went to London. Then we went to Bristol. Last weekend, we were in the Centre for Alternative Technology in McCunthleth. And the final leg of the festival is going to be in Glasgow on November the 11th. So I 
heavily, heavily invite and encourage everyone to join us for that. If any of the things we spoke about today about climate, um, the future of the built environment um, struck a chord with you, these conversations are going to be unpacked in far, far more nuance um, at this event. So we'd Great. love people to come by. And that's it in Glasgow on the 11th. And how do people get tickets for that? It is free to attend, but if you <clears throat> go to uh, bit.ly ly slash retrofit reimagined 23, that'll take you to the website for it. Finally, before we go, Charlie, um, where can our listeners keep up to date with you and the work that you do? Yep. So my personal socials are probably very boring. So I'll give you the socials for Future Architects Front instead. So on Instagram, we are fa.front. And on Twitter, we are Architects Front. That's probably where you'll see the uh, juiciest updates from me. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Charlie. It's been absolutely brilliant to have you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Thank you.